Good afternoon, y'all. Can y'all hear me? Everybody good? All right. Well, uh, thank you. Um, again, I'm sure you guys have heard many thank yous, but I'll send y'all another one for uh, attending the Fifth Annual Texas Tribune Festival. My name is Julian Aguilar. I'm the uh, Border and Immigration Affairs Reporter for the Texas Tribune. I've had the pleasure of being with the Tribune since day one and uh, sort of seeing this festival grow, and it's always uh, very exciting and very important. And, um, intense, emotional, controversial, and everything in between, especially with a topic like this. Um, if you guys have stuck around this long, you kind of know the drill. I'll just go over it uh, very quickly. We ask that you turn your phones uh, either to silence or to vibrate at least. And if you um, want to tweet, we ask that you use the hashtag TTF, Text Tribune Festival. Um, and the format's similar to what you guys have seen uh, several times today. It's about a 40, 45 minute discussion up here, and then we'll save the last 15, 20 minutes for question and answers. I'll let you all know right before the last question that I asked so you guys can get lined up and we'll just go in order. Hopefully we'll have time for everybody. Um, and uh, that's about it. Again, uh, second to the last panel, so thank you all very much for, for being here. I'm going to start off with some brief introductions and then we'll get right into the discussion on um, immigration reform and what happened to it. Uh, you know, last year it was a similar conversation. I think people were a little bit more hopeful, but maybe not so much this year. But um, we'll get into that here in a few minutes. Uh, just a quick introduction for my panelists. On my immediate left is Rebecca Acuna, who currently serves as the Executive Director of the Latino Center for Leadership Development out of Dallas. Uh, she implements the organization's programs and services. She has previously worked uh, as a Chief of Staff for uh, State Representative Cesar Blanco from El Paso, who, from what I understand, had a very lively conversation on border security earlier. Uh, she was also the Statewide Press Secretary for um, Wendy Davis's campaign for governor. And uh, she was also the communications director in Washington, D.C. for uh, Congressman Pete Gallego. Um, she was also somewhat of a journalist for the Rio Grande Guardian way back in the day. So, um, pleasure to have her here. To her left is uh, Mr. Bill Hammond. Uh, since 1988, he's led the Texas Association of Business. It's the state's largest business organization. Uh, previously, he worked, excuse me, he served on the Texas Workforce Commission and was appointed chairman uh, by former Governor uh, George W. Bush. He also served four terms in the Texas House and in 2011, he was named one of the 25 most powerful people in Texas politics. Um, if you guys know the Capitol, you've no doubt seen Mr. Hammond um, talking to people and uh, having a lot of influence sort of in the, in the conversations, especially about business and immigration reform issues. Uh, to his left is Esperanza Hope Andrade. She was appointed to the Texas Workforce Commission in March of 2013 and finished her term uh, in February. From 2008 to 2012, she served as the first Latina Secretary of State. She's also served on the Texas Transportation Commission. <coughs> Excuse me. And last but not least, we have Mr. Ali Nirani, who has led the National Immigration Forum. It's a Washington, D.C.-based uh, immigration policy think tank. Since uh, 2008, the think tank's mission is to tout the value of immigrants and immigration to the United States. Um, so quick round of applause for our panelists. It's a pleasure to have you on. So uh, what's sort of been, been timely in the news for at least the last three months, if not definitely since November, where I'd like to start off, is I guess the closest thing that we have to immigration reform right now, um, some people would argue it's better labeled executive amnesty. Some people would argue that, you know, that it's not enough. Um, it's a step towards immigration reform. But that's the, the president's deferred action policies that were announced in November. And that, those have been tied up with this circuit. Um, the quick rundown is in November, the president announced that he uh, was going to tell Immigration and Customs Enforcement and, and the related agencies to use prosecutorial discretion, um, which would allow, and, and allow roughly uh, five million undocumented immigrants in the country um, to apply for a renewable work permit and for legal status. Uh, there's a big difference between legal presence and legal status. Legal status is that you're allowed to be here without the fear of deportation. Legal um, presence is you've obviously worked to have some sort of valid visa or you're on your way to a green card, which is sort of the, the generic uh, definitions of both but they're very uh, controversial and there's a big difference. We'll get into that here in a bit. So um, in, uh, immediately after the president announced his policy in December, uh, former Attorney General, our current governor, uh, Greg Abbott filed suit in Brownsville. Uh, a lot of people accused uh, the governor of going sort of shopping for a sympathetic court. Judge Andrew Hainan, the US District Judge, was known for being sort of a, a hardliner in immigration issues and as a lot of people predict that he ended up uh, halting the program. It's been through the Fifth Circuit um, process twice now. And what I wanted to talk to Mr. Uh, Narani about was the, the timeline. A lot of folks are waiting on a Fifth Circuit decision. I think they, they assume that the Fifth Circuit, as they did a few months ago, are going to again reject the DAPA program for going into effect. But what's more importantly right now is the timeline. A lot of folks say if the decision doesn't come down 
it's not going to leave the administration any time to file a petition before the Supreme Court, get it heard, and even if all that falls, in, falls into place, the first um, or the earliest that the Supreme Court could rule would be in June, which means the final half year of President Obama's um, uh, presidency. So I just wanted to ask you, how important is it that the circuit rules on this um, within the next few weeks? I mean, I think if, if we're going to see this case in front of the Supreme Court uh, and a decision from the Supreme Court, uh, before the end of the administration's just time in the White House, they've got a rule sometime in the next, I think, six months. But if they want to, if we want to see this decision brought to bear uh, before the end of June next year, they do have to make a decision, if not already, really in the next couple of weeks. Um, but I mean, what this drives then is a really heated political debate uh, in 2016, kind of regardless what the Fifth Circuit does. Um, because if they hold the ball, which I think they will do, um, and clearly they are doing, I mean, at some point they're going to have to make a decision. Uh, if they don't make a decision next year, uh, what happens within the Republican nomination, primary no, uh, debate is that, I mean, we've seen it before, before our eyes. You see the field being dragged to the right by Trump, et cetera, and you see the reasonable voices, Bush, Rubio, Kasich, others, who are, are um, they have nowhere to go. And, um, you know, the president's executive actions, policy-wise, are really good, I think, um, politically. They're uh, kind of a recipe for disaster for the Republican Party unless they put forward something constructively on the legislative front. Uh, Mr. Hammond, I'd like to ask you, there's a, a lot of folks in your party um, that say that the president went about We're the nonpartisan. Sorry? We're nonpartisan. Well, do you still identify as a Republican? I understand. You, you individually? Right. Yeah. You served as a Republican, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, just make it sure. Um, a lot of folks in the Republican Party say that the president went about it the wrong way. Whether they agree or not with his policies or what he was trying to do, that's, that comes you know, way after the fact that he just you know, said, I'm the president, I'm the commander in chief, I'm going to do it. Do you agree that he overstepped his bounds? Yes, I think he made a mistake in terms of the long-term goal, which incidentally we do support. I mean, I know you're aware of it, but I'm not sure the audience is. We support comprehensive immigration reform to include a pathway to citizenship. Sure. Uh, but I think that his action, his unilateral action, actually hurt the prospects of the Congress moving on the issue uh, because it stiffened their resolve against doing something on the issue uh, and is unlikely to be upheld, I think, by the courts. Isn't that the conventional wisdom? I don't think the Fifth point? Circuit is going gonna, is gonna to rule with right. the administration. Right, but I mean, I, I don't, do you think the Supreme Court is going to? Our, our sense right now is the Supreme Court would Would, would support it? Right. Okay, well, uh, you know, then that, that, that's a pathway for five million. I don't know how many. Uh, the percentages are not very high in terms of what the, uh, what the students, right, in terms of the ones that actually mm -hmm. try to take advantage of that. Well, I mean. Well, yeah, so yeah. if I may, I, I was in Congress in 2013 when immigration reform, CIR, passed the Senate. It was right after the elections, right after President Obama had gotten 74% of the Latino vote. And so everybody was saying, this is going to be the year. They want to get this past them. It is not, Congress is just not passing immigration reform. And what we're seeing with the executive actions is that these are the, these are the things that are making a difference. In Texas alone, over 100,000 people have received um, DACA permits, which means that they are now getting social security numbers, that they are working, that they are getting driver's licenses, opening up bank, bank accounts. Now, it's, it's a real shame, I think, that a state that benefits so much from both DACA and, and, and DAPA, we have our governor leading the fight against these. And if they were both um, fully implemented and all eligible people applied, Texas would have about 745,000 people in the state under both of those programs. Madam Secretary, if you wanted to weigh in, we talked in the green room about, you know, your, your concern now is, there are people here, we need, to, we need to figure out something with the people that are here. Maybe not necessarily that more people in or get people out, but the, the population that is here. So where do you stand on the, on the executive action and whether it was the right, the right movement? Well, not, you, not necessarily the process, but the right. actual policy. You know, I always prefer that we, do, we go through the process sure. because then everybody is, has worked on this together. W what happened is that I think there was a lot of celebration when this happened, but there's no certainty. And so they still function on the same level of what happens if it goes away. Sure. And I think that's unfair for, for them to, to go through that. Uh, you know, as you know, I worked on the Texas Workforce Commission, and one of the things that, that we kept hearing over and over again from our employers was that, um, that they just can't get enough workers. And, and yet we've got people here that are willing to work, that want to work, and if we would just establish some kind of a guest worker program, 
while we're working on comprehensive immigration reform, I think we'd do so much better. Because everyone wants to work legally. No one wants, it's not like they came here, uh, you know, they came here because they wanted to realize the American dream. Uh, I'm the daughter of an immigrant that came here. And he did make a better life for all of us. But we just need to do something with what we have today, with what we're facing today, and then keep working on the long-term plan. Rebecca, the, 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 I guess the, uh, the guest worker program, a lot of people said that that would create two classes of immigrants, you know, an immigrant that's on, on his or her way to uh, LPR status, eventual citizenship, and somebody that's never going to get that and could be taken advantage of because they are never going to get any sort of, you know, they have legal, again, legal presence, or legal status, but not legal presence. Where, do you think guest workers, do you think that's at least a step in the right direction, or is it all enough? Well, I think, as a person who was undocumented until I was 25 years old, I, and trust me, I absolutely pushed for, um, advocated for step path to citizenship. But I would have told you that I just wanted something that was going to make a difference. Right. Um, so ultimately, I do think we need comprehensive immigration reform. But for now, if we have policies in place like, DAP, like DACA and DAPA that do grant these work permits, why don't we work to implement these better in our state? Can I ask you a question? Yes, so what percentage of those who, would, uh, who are undocumented today would prefer legal status over citizenship? I mean, citizenship, even under any sort of a plan, there would be a lot of hoops to fall, right. go, go through. This is something we, we discussed last year, because a lot of people say, you know, the, the argument is, you know, Obama wants to make everybody citizens so they can go vote Democratic, and there's other people that are saying, you know, Probably half the people they just want to be able to work and not get the right or more. I would I would think it'd be more, but so I don't know. Are there any statistics? I, it's hard to pull 11, yeah, I, 11 million undocumented folks. You know? I'm not sold that the issue when you talk to Democrats or even Republicans who are not in favor of immigration reform is whether or not the undocumented have a path to citizenship. I just don't think that's. I'm not sold that that is what's holding back a member of Congress from saying, oh yeah, now let's, let's fix the immigration system. I think what's holding people back is a really really difficult. Um, intense cultural debate that's, you know, roiling throughout community through communities across the country. And until we have, uh, you know, frankly, leadership at the state and federal level that's willing to kind of lead that conversation, this is going to be really tough. And I, I just, I'm just not sold that it's a, you know, is it citizenship or is it legal status that that's the the legislative question. I think the the legislative question can only be answered once you know leadership says, okay, we're we're serious about fixing this. And you know, if I may add, uh, a study that I recently saw was that not everybody wants citizenship. Right. And, and, and I believe that citizenship should be earned uh, and that there should be a pathway eventually to citizenship, but only after you've done every, there's There's a criteria. This is the, the best country in the world. Uh, we should earn that. But I, I believe that we just get confused and we politicize it that, oh, if there's no pathway to citizenship, we're not going to do anything. And we're going to spend, look, I think that I've been going to Washington for the past 10, 15 years as a private citizen uh, trying to encourage comprehensive immigration reform. And here we are today, and we haven't made any progress. So let's start in small steps. And some of us say, well, no, we do small steps, and we'll never get comprehensive immigration reform. Well, but heck, we haven't done anything. We, haven't, we don't have anything except Dr. and DAPA. And, and it's not certain. I was, well, I was going to ask, I was going to follow up. It seems like a few years ago there was a lot of talk about at least the DREAM Act, not the, the overall, the DAPA, but just the DREAM Act component. Is there still an appetite to do something, you know, at least for a, for a select mm -hmm. few? Because it seems like there, and uh, the DAPA, the 2012 uh, program, is, is still intact, and a lot of folks say that there's not really an appetite to go after these kids, right? It's a, it's a more sympathetic demographic, so to speak. So is there still an appetite to do the DREAM Act as opposed to the overall DAPA DACA combination? I think right now in Congress, uh, things are really, really quite ugly. Uh, on Tuesday, I know that's a pretty, that's a profound <laughs> statement. Uh, hold on, breaking, right? Um, I, I mean, on Tuesday, the Senate's going to be voting on legislation to uh, pull back local law enforcement funds for, quote, sanctuary cities. I mean, that's the mindset right now of, of both the House and the Senate, is just purely enforcement only. I think what we're going to see over the next six months is that you know, the primary will start to settle itself out eventually. You'll have a general election nominee in both nominees for both parties. They'll start to race to the center and try to compete for Latino and Asian votes. That's when we'll see actually what kind of impact the Latino, the Latino and, and Asian community will have in November of next year, and then really what the opening will be in 17. You mentioned uh, sanctuary cities, and I, and I want to touch on that as well. And I apologize if anybody was in the, the earlier panel where this was a topic of discussion as well. But, um, 
2011 flashback to sanctuary cities debate here at the legislature. It went down to the wire, uh, you know, two times in the regular session and the special session. Um, the, the business community and the faith-based community and the law enforcement community ended up, you know, heavily opposed to it. It didn't pass, even though it could have. Um, 2013, it kind of went away. 2015, it comes back again. Um, this time around, though, there's, it seems to be a more of a, an appetite on the national level, like you just alluded to the fact that they're going to vote on this next week. Um, on the on the flip side, you know, you have a, a young woman in, in California who was who was killed um, by somebody who had been deported three times. The same week, you have somebody in Laredo, Texas, who was killed, uh, you know, allegedly killed by her boyfriend or her husband. I'm not I'm not exactly sure their legal status, but um, with a hammer, and he had been deported three times. So, I mean. That's not right. <laughs> so no, what is the argument against sanctuary cities if it's going to prevent these things? I mean, there's got to be a line that's drawn somewhere. I mean, it's absolutely not right. I mean, these are terrible things that, are ha that happen. Um, and the way to handle those is that you make sure that local law enforcement are able to focus their resources, but more importantly, that federal law enforcement are able to focus their resources. Right now, you have you know, 10 million people who are living undocumented, and you have immigration customs enforcement that are, you know, frankly, they're, they're looking for a pin in a haystack, a needle in a haystack. So if you fix the immigration system, put people onto a path to legal status, Those, that person in, uh, who allegedly committed that murder, allegedly using the legal term here, um, you know, that communication between ICE and, that miscommunication between ICE and uh, the San Francisco Sheriff's Department doesn't happen. I mean, that's, the, the system right now is overwhelmed, so policymakers can continue with the status quo, which is amnesty, or they can fix it. But how much, I mean, how much more money can you give the federal government to, for, you know, for removals or for border patrol? I mean, they we're spending record amounts. Um, but then you have these policies. You have the, uh, the the Morton memo, which you know outlines you you switch from yep. secure communities to the um, the PEP program, right. which seems like it just makes things even more complicated. You get one person it's like, well, do they have U.S. citizen children? You know, how, do they have a job? Do they have a DWI? Do they have the shoplifting thing? It seems like there's so many different areas to where people sort of can fall slip through the cracks, for lack of a better term. So what is what is? I mean, I don't know if anybody else wants to win, but I mean, what is in y'all's opinion? What is the federal government doing with us with this record spending? Well, I mean, it's the government, for starters. So if you have, uh, you know, I don't know how many screw-ups a year, that's just the way the government operates. I mean, it's not going to be a perfect system. I'm, you know, I don't know all the details, but the mistakes are made. I mean, as I understand it in Texas, and Eddie Aldretti will correct me later if I'm wrong, that, uh, huh? Or now, he'll correct Yeah, or now. Yeah, he may just stand up and say, you're an idiot, Eamon. Uh, you know, the, the, the system is working. I mean, if someone gets taken to the jail, then they are run through the system, are they not in Texas? Well, see, that's, again, that's open to debate because you have a lot of people saying that once the community is... I mean, I don't, I don't think the police community objects to that. No, they don't. What the police community objects to is being told that they, uh, you know, must ask the status of people in the crowd, right. or, for instance, or witnesses, or that sort of thing. That's, that's where the rub comes, and, and I, that's, as I understand it. And I think it's going to be one of those things where people say, well, we thought it was bad before, but it's a lot worse now because, and I, and I say this because different counties, different jails in Texas operate with, on, on different levels. You have, right. some, you have some entities saying, we're gonna, give them, we're gonna give ICE 24 hours to get this person. Right. If they're not here, we're gonna, let, we're gonna bond them out. You have other people saying 48 hours. You have people not notifying ICE at all. There has to be a uniform system to get these people off the street. And I mean, the, go ahead, go ahead. I would, you know, you brought up this case of this woman in Laredo. Huh? So two years ago, Congress was passing, this, the US Senate had passed um, immigration reform. Right. Then we're doing DACA, DAPA. And now the debate is not even about moving forward on immigration. Now we have the Republican, some of the Republican candidates like Donald Trump saying, hey, let's take away citizenship from people who are born here. And now we're going to have this, it's, instead of a policy, policy fight, this is another political fight on Tuesday. What, what sanctuary cities, what legislation like that does is it actually prevents um, victims of crime. It, it, from reporting um, what happens to them. It, women who are the victims of domestic violence who are undocumented are very unlikely to go to the police, and right. especially if these policies were put in place. And that goes into the definition, at least at the state level, on when the legislation was crafted in 2011, it was any person that was um, detained or arrested. And I think the, the word detained was, well, what does that mean? Does that mean hey, you witness a crime, I'm going to talk to you, which technically is you're being detained by law enforcement or you're in cuffs and you're being run through the system. So I, I agree that there was a lot of, um, I guess, ambiguity with the terms that were used. Um, but still, moving forward, I, again, wh whether people agree with you or, or don't agree with it, two years ago, you know, this is the, the way the conversation has changed. That's the way the conversation is going. So what, what, is, 
But I mean, I, I, you know, so I said earlier that Congress is in a bad place. Right. But I think the debate is actually in a great place. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a very clear choice for the public. Donald Trump, uh, the, leading, uh, the con leading contender for the Republican Party, is presenting a very clear choice to the public. He's saying, I'm in favor of mass deportation, so vote for me. Sure. Right? And the other, other candidates are saying, you know, we're in favor of humane solutions. So I think that the, the clarity of the choice, um, it, it crystallizes the debate. And that, for us, is a really good thing. I'm going to echo a comment from my colleague, Alexa Uda, this morning, who said, if you would have told me a year ago that Donald Trump would be mentioned so many times at this year's festival, I mean, nobody, I wouldn't have bet money on it. But it's, is, is that a reflection of the way you think the people are so upset in this country, Madam Secretary, that, 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 that that's why he's so popular? Not to say he's not going to fall off in the next few weeks or months, but do you think it's because people are so frustrated? Well, I don't think any of us would have thought that Donald Trump has gotten as far as he has. But one of the things that we do have to, uh, I get not, I don't, know, I don't know why I should use the word grateful, is that he's brought immigration to the forefront. I mean, prior to his talking about immigration, we weren't talking about immigration as a priority. When you look at the list of issues that were before us, immigration wasn't in the top three. And the system is broken, and we need to fix it. Do you agree with that, Mr. Chairman? I, don't, I disagree in entirely. In because uh, there were tens of thousands of people rallying for immigration reform in the streets right. of Dallas and Houston. So this is at least nine or 10 years this has been in Well, I mean, uh, there's frustration uh, by a lot of people. But there's very a large segment, 25, 30%, whatever it is, which is, is near where he is, with, of Republican primary voters. That's, he's getting 25% of people who intend to vote in a Republican primary. So if you're a candidate running for office, you're not gonna, you, you, you ignore that percentage at your own risk. That, that's the real problem, is that we don't have any races in the middle anymore. Well, in Texas, we have none, except maybe, um, you know, the Laredo, I mean, the uh, San Antonio de El Paso district, heard, and, Pete, uh, yeah, but for as far as statewide, as far as state rep and state senate, there were no races in the fall, none. And so all you worry about is the uh, ideological left and the right in the primaries. I think Trump is a complete disaster for the Republican Party and has lessened the probability of getting anything done. I think he's done unimaginable damage to the Republican brand. And, you know, we had uh, Bush, what, 44 percent? Um, yeah, and R Romney got, what, 24 percent? Something like that? And I mean, you know, Trump is headed for a negative two. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not gonna fade away, the fact that he's said and done these things and hasn't been universally rebuked by all the other candidates. I mean, to me, it, it, it's a complete disaster for the issue. It solidifies the opposition to doing something. I mean, he, he's getting 25% of the vote and he's talking about deporting 12 million individuals. I mean, that's Looney Tunes. This early on, and I know that the field is still very crowded on the Republican side, but who, who is making the most sense to you? Well, I mean, the two, I would say, from an immigration perspective, uh, you know, Kasich, Bush, and uh, Rubio are the three I would think would be, because they have a record, you know, of trying to, wanting to do something and deal with the issue in terms of what they've said and done. Of course, Rubio got his fingers burned a few years ago, and he kind of backed away. I don't know where he is today. Bush wrote a book. And then it did a horrible job uh, selling it. And, uh, but Kasich uh, seems to do, uh, you know, from what I've seen of the man, he seems like a, a reasonable guy. And the few things that I've heard him say seems to me that he would be one of the three most likely to try to work, craft a solution. But you see, Bill, excuse me, I, I think one of the things that, that uh, I think everybody was cautious when they spoke about immigration. And what Trump said made us all so angry that we started talking about immigration. And I think he's energized some of the population to say. Well, he's energized Hispanics. That's for damn sure. And I'm one of those. Okay. Well, I understand okay. that. But <laughs> that's not necessarily good for yes. Republicans. Well, but you know what? <clears throat> I think that it is because it's energized us in the fact that we need to do something about the system. Okay. Well, I hope and, you're, and I hope you're we, right. We, we are a big voting block. And if you address our issues that, that are important, which is you know very similar to the Republican philosophy, it's give us opportunity and we'll provide the rest, hard work. But I think that everyone was so cautious. I mean, we saw what it did to McCain when he started talking about immigration, that immediately his numbers dropped and his, his funding, uh, his fundraising dropped. So I think the fact that he's energized us, I think you know one of the things I was mentioning to Ali was that in Washington I heard the, um, our vice president said that uh, you know, with what Trump had done to Hispanics, uh, Hispanics were walking around with their heads down. We're not walking around with our heads down. We're energized, and you know what? We're going to make sure that we get the right 
candidate in office to fix this broken system. Right, but I would also, I'm sorry, but you, I think you're going to need a Republican to solve this problem. I don't think you're going to do it with a Democratic president. Why that? Well, just because uh, the Republicans are going to control the House. I think that's pretty much considered. And in, in, in the Senate, either, either, you know, they might be at 51 or 48 or, you know, but uh, they're going to be a substantial. I, I think the probability is better with a Republican. Is, is, there, is there no room, though? Is it, is it, am I being too cynical to say that people cannot learn and in the next couple of years craft legislation based on parts of the Gang of Eight bill, uh, based on this DACA DACA, you know, intricacies in the process? I mean, can't people learn from what's already been done and sort of put something that's more palatable to everybody? That's you, like, go ahead. If you, if you just look at, we're not shifting in that direction. It's going, I, I agree with Mr. Hammond, Donald Trump has shifted this conversation so much further to the right than anybody could have imagined, where you have um, Ted Cruz saying, okay, I don't agree with birthright citizenship either. Let's repeal the 14th Amendment, where um, you had Jeb Bush now saying, I'm going to repeal DACA if I'm president, DACA DAPA, within the first 100 days. Oh, I, I've never used anchor babies, but I wasn't talking about Latinos. I really meant Asians. Right. Um, so that is where the conversation is going. I think it's going further from an actual solution. So, exactly. you, so you paint an even more dire picture then. Ab absolutely. And then from a personal perspective, during the, when Trump, you know, he's all over the news. My mother lives in Georgetown. She works as a cashier in, in Home Depot. And she's a citizen. And she said to me, I'm so scared of Donald Trump. I said, Mom, he's never going to win. She's like, I don't think he's going to win. I'm scared that now people are going to start to be, to insult me because I'm Latina. Right. Um, going back to what I was asking earlier, any any way to sort of learn from what's already been done and put a put a new mm -hmm. a new pitch forward? We we, oh. just, we we know what the solutions are. They're not hidden in some book in the library. They're out there right now. We know what the things are, the the elements of comprehensive immigration reform. You, you make it you seem know. so easy, but nothing's happening. Well, it's not easy. But I mean, I'm you say are there solutions there? I think the solutions are there. They're 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 putting together the pieces of the pie to get you to. 51% of the legislators, or 60% in the Senate. I mean, the, 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 the policy framework is there. There's no, I mean, the question is the politics. So, you know, for, since I'm the one up here thinking that we're in a great position, I'll kind of expand a little bit on that. Um, I think there are three scenarios come 2017. There is one scenario where Donald Trump wins. We're going to skip over that. Uh, <laughs> there's another scenario where it's a Bush, Rubio, or Kasich. I think they win because they are able to uh, motivate enough Latino voters in a Florida, a Colorado, or a Nevada in order to take one of those states. So they're going to need one of those three states. Um, then the third scenario is a Hillary Clinton win, where it's more than likely a blowout based on massive turnout by Latino voters uh, in those states plus Virginia. Uh, Northern Virginia now is all Asian and, and Latino. So what I mean by that is that, again, any, any, either of those last two scenarios means that Republicans, if they are in the House, the new Speaker of, of, the Republican, of the House at that point is saying, you know what, I'm not going to make the same mistake that John Mader made. Right. You know, I'm going to get this done and get it over with. Let's say it's, I agree it's going to be a 51-49 split, one, way, one direction or another, maybe more, maybe uh, a little bit more in the Senate. There will be the same amount of political pressure. Um, for us, I think for all of us in, our, in the room, there's two things we have to do, whether it's on the Republican side or the Democratic side. Advance a constructive debate. Make sure that your voters are the ones that are talking to candidates and saying, you know, Republican X or Democrat Y, this is what I want. But then on top of that, getting ready for the first 100 days of 2017. Because that'll be the space and the opportunity to, to set, a, to set the, the frame. Folks, we have a, a, I guess he just wandered in off the street, but we'll let him sit down. Senator, good to see you, sir. Well, welcome. Immigration reform. What's the deal with all of that? That's um, well, I'm gonna. We'll get. We'll get back uh, to a different topic here and let you let you chime in. Um, just the last thing on, on I guess the voter turnout. I did a panel earlier this morning. Senator Rodney Ellis said that you know people have been saying that the Hispanic vote is a sleeping giant since the 1960s. You know, so there's a lot of talk between here and election day, and we'll see what actually happens. Because and they're they're you know I think Trump is working on it. Well, I mean credit where credit's due. The Hispanic, the Latinos that, that vote in this country, they are they are interested in immigration, but they're also interested in transportation oh, yeah. and education. Well, I, I, and healthcare. here's something I've been told: Look, immigration may not be the number one issue with Hispanics, but it's a gateway issue. And if you can't get through the gate, you can't sell the product. So but we're I, the, I don't know whether we're that's the true majority. Or not. I mean, we're going to be. You know, what you see in Texas is the future. 
And, and when, uh, I guess I, I'm having a hard time when you say they, they, it's okay, we, well, it's we. we. Okay, well, it's not me. Uh, no, it's not you. Look but, at me. But I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, we seem to forget that there's, and I don't know the exact number, but there's 11 million people here. And we're all working on trying the future, and that's gonna take years. But no one is talking about what are we doing with those people that are here? Are, are they getting abused because of their employer, because they don't have papers? Well, we should correct that. We've got children in schools that are here, and that their parents are here, and that they don't attend, they don't get engaged in their, in their children's school because they're afraid to, and that's gonna hurt uh, the future of their children. We need, to, we need to remind ourselves that they're here, and we have a responsibility, and while we're all of us working in Washington trying to get some kind of immigration reform, we must not forget the ones that are here. I want to go into new statistics that um, came out in a, a few months ago. Um, it came out that um, immigrants from, from Asia were, were now more than the immigrants from Mexico. Not, that, it's not to say that there are um, more, there's still, the Mexican immigrants are still the largest uh, immigrant bloc, but the, the pattern is shifting to where there are fewer and fewer coming. Is that going to inform the debate? And I'll just be blunt. Is it because there are fewer Mexicans that people are going to be more palatable to immigration reform? No, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's an issue in terms of the, the, I think it's been an easy punching, political punching bag. I mean, there's certain red meat pr primary boxes people check off in certain primaries, and, and immigration is one of those. If you talk about the border, or you talk about Obamacare, there's certain things that they just seem to have to beat up on in order to, to run. But this morning, Univision in San Antonio had an education uh, fair. Feria Escolar. The panel that I led up was, you know, what should immigrant parents know about education? And it was 100% in Spanish. And, and what they wanted to talk about was, how do I help my child be successful? How do I help my child succeed in grade school, high school, get into college? And so the issues, it, as a state, we can't be myopic about this. I mean, we already have 114,000 foreign-born servicemen and women serving in our armed forces. 12% of our population, not US citizens. We're here. I mean, the issue is how as Americans can we come to terms with a pathway to citizenship that makes sense, you know? That gets people out of the shadows, that has them uh, paying taxes and a part of society. I met with some Marshall Fellows from Europe a few days ago in San Antonio. They were talking about that as a as country, the United States has been more ready to adopt and to integrate immigrants into their society, and that's what they feel more, that we do it more successfully than they do in Europe. They're having troubles with immigration now, and they're here trying to learn, and they find it odd that our presidential candidates are so far apart on these issues. So, uh, Secretary, I want, you mentioned uh, workers and being, you know, working with, without proper documentation and that being sort of right for abuse, and I want to talk about, at the state level anyway, uh, E-Verify legislation. Um, so before he left office, uh, former Governor Perry issued an executive order um, mandating that state agencies uh, adopt the E-Verify system and also uh, the contractors, the companies that have contracts with the state agencies. Um, there was a Senate bill by um, Senator Schwartner, Republican from Georgetown, that pretty much codified that policy, uh, except it took out the state contractor provision. It's just for state agencies. Um, now it's gone before the, uh, the, there's a request into the Attorney General of Texas um, to, to clarify which policy should be in place because TxDOT, from what I understand, is the one that requested the opinion because they're still doing the state contractors and the state agencies. I guess there, there's so many, you know, should we do this, should we do that, should we do that? Texas is such a red state and, and the Republicans control the state and they can pretty much pass what they would like. Why is it so difficult to get clarity on something that's as simple as E-Verify and a watered-down E-Verify bill? Um, I guess I'll ask, you know, both the other, you know, we talked about E-Verify and you, you say A-Verify is fine if it's only for future employers or prospective employees, which is, which is the well, worst Well, I said there are a lot of concerns about the validity of E-Verify and false positives and that sort of thing. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a, I'm a 30,000 foot guy. You probably know a lot more about E-Verify than I do. I, I, I would be concerned about it as a policy because of the lack of effectiveness. And then if you get into it, um, you know, well, there are a lot of problems associated with that because of the lack of reliability. And again, it, it needs to be part of a comprehensive system. I mean, the only way really it'll work is if you allow enough legal immigration to meet the needs of employers. 
if you don't do that, you're going to continue to have problems, Going back in my to opinion. The, so, to, sorry. To, to the flaws, you know, I think now the studies, are, it's anywhere from 98 to 99 percent, you know, oh, really? effective. Um, you said, you know, it's government. There's going to be, it's not going to be perfect. Doesn't that sort of fall into that same category? It's like, this is the best system we have. Why not implement it? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, there, uh, what, what, what is your, what is your position on E-Verify these Do you want to talk to the state and then I'll talk sure. to the federal okay. government? You know, as a state agency, as a state agency I think it's a, we serve as a role model for the rest of the state. Uh, Texas is a business-friendly state, so we, we try not to tell businesses how to do business. Sure. But I will tell you that as an employer, um, we did E-Verify. And it certainly provided a, a safe net for us uh, if we ever had audits. We could always go back to saying that, that we, all our employees, were part of the E-Verify program. So I think it's up to the employer as to if they want to pursue that, but I certainly would encourage it. I think E-Verify, oddly enough, I find it ironic that we're in a session full of folks asking to shrink government. It seems that we would expand government when it comes to uh, finding uh, illegal employees or undocumented employees. When I don't think, to me, this is another example of a, a solution looking for a problem to solve. I don't think state agencies are out there uh, looking to hire undocumented right. workers. I just. It's another one of those, you know, uh, is it a feel-good? E-Verify, in my opinion, is unnecessary. I mean, we already process I-9 forms. And so, I mean, to me, it seems that if you're doing this, it's just burdensome, costly, potentially confusing for agencies. Uh, there's no guarantee on the, uh, on the errors. And I, I, so, no, I didn't support it because I just didn't see the need for it. I thought it was superfluous. Danny, but you bring up a good point. You're talking about how the state implemented it for state agencies for future employees, but they said, but contractors right. don't apply. And I think that that is essentially an admission that the state probably does, at some level, rely on undocumented workers. Well, they, they would, the counter argument would be, like the Madam Secretary said, we're not going to tell the private businesses how to do business. It's, you know, this is Texas, it's hands off. But it, you know, I, I'm not sure about the 98%, because I've got some labor lawyers that are members of ours. And I asked one of them recently. He's an immigration guy. And he's, I said, what do you give E-Verify? He said, a D minus. So I'm not sure what all the problems associated with are, and I need to know more, but I'm not sure uh, that it's working properly. My, our, our, my concern with, with E-Verify is, you know, okay, there, there are accuracy issues, et cetera, but we talk about it like this, it's this uh, sterile, it's gonna fix all the problems where problems may or may not exist. But the fact is that when a company is audited, what happens is that, let's say I employ 100 people, I get audited, and the I says, okay, 50 of these people did not check out other I-9s and you know you used E-Verify or you didn't. What happens to those 50 people is that they go down the road and work for my, co my competitor as a contractor, no benefits, mm -hmm. no wage protections, et cetera, et cetera. So these people right. are not, you know, they may not be, quote, deported from the country, but they're being deported from a good job uh, and a way to put food on, their ta on the table for their families. And me as an employer, I'm undermined by an unscrupulous, uh, my unscrupulous competitor. Mm -hmm. And I imagine the agriculture industry um, that where three, three quarters of their workforce is undocumented, if they were uh, all subject, subjected to a mandatory E-Verify, done. I mean, so well, I just think we talk about E-Verify like it's this abstract, you know, fix-all program, and it's, it's, a, it's a social and economic disaster waiting to happen. I think it should be a choice for the, for the employer. Uh, they want to do things the, in a way that would uh, protect them in the future. That's fair. They yeah. would take it if they yeah. don't. That's our chance, but, but I do think that if we had a legal guest worker program, we wouldn't be facing these challenges. The last thing on the, on the current E-Verify uh, issue is that uh, the Governor Perry's order said that it was in place until another governor sort of struck it from the record and did his own thing. So Governor Abbott can make the decision. He can say, go with the Senate bill, um, which is just for state agencies, or go with Perry's mandate, which is for state agencies and the contractors. He um, decided to stay out of the fray and leave it to the attorney, attorney general. So if you into that, which you might want to, but it, I mean, it gives them good coverage. Say, hey, you know, that's not me, that's them, and I'll let them kind of deal with it. But a lot of people are saying, well, Governor Abbott, if he wanted to, you know, crack down on the immigration issue, he could just say, well, no, you know, I'm going to stick with Perry's order because it also, you know, it also makes sure that undocumented workers aren't working for these contractors. Um, folks, we're going to start taking questions. We kind of burnt through this time very quickly. So if you guys had anything that you were wanting to ask, feel free to line up to my can I make, oh, I'm sorry, did you say something? No. I, I, while we're waiting on questioners, if there are any, you know, I think that I would like to point out, uh, the senator certainly played a large role, uh, but 
to a certain extent, we got lucky on sanctuary cities and in-state tuition in the, in the legislature this year. I think we had two well, Republicans, I, Estes and Eltife, yeah. one of whom were losing. Yeah. And I think that uh, things are going to be dicier next go around with issues of that nature uh, yeah. in the Texas Senate. Uh, yeah. Estes went up this year. He will be in two years if he chooses to run again. I, I mean, I think those guys should get some and maybe they don't want it, but they should get some recognition for the kind of job that they were willing to do. Oh, we tried but, getting them on the record, but you're right. They said, well, yeah, yeah, I know, but I mean, uh, I think they, they deserve a lot of credit. My, the point of all that is that it, it's going to be a new battle beginning in 2017, January 2017. And I think it's going to be more difficult than it was in 2015. I want to give Bill a lot of credit um, because, yeah, I mean, so. in, in D.C., People took notice of the Texas Association of Businesses standing up next to Dreamers, next to the faith community, saying, you know what, this is a law that needs to be protected. So I just really I, want to I have that. to agree with both of those points. And in sanctuary cities, you know, I, I, I had a coach that said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So I don't really, I'm not, I'm not much for saying lucky. I, I, I do say that we all worked hard. And I remember having a conversation with my good friend, uh, Senator Eltife, former Mayor Eltife. And he asked me, give me a Republican reason why I can say I'm opposed to sanctuary cities. And I said, do you remember when you were mayor? He said, yeah, of course. You had a police chief, right? Yeah. Did you want your police chief setting the policy in terms of who he arrested for how long, who he detained for how long, or do you want the state of Texas telling your police chief his officers are free of everything? They have to listen on everything except immigration. He said, no, of course. You got to have cities got to be able to run their own police departments. Uh, hi, um, I'm a current beneficiary of DACA and a current student here at UT, and so I've personally seen the benefits of the program. And so it uh, kind of makes me kind of anxious, like uh, right now with the primaries, with uh, the candidates having complete, like, you know, uh, both spectrums of the side. And so uh, what are some possible scenarios, like going into 2018, as to, like, the future of uh, the program? And if any of those scenarios include taking it away, what would be of those people that are current beneficiaries? First, Ali mentioned this, um, 2017 is going to be the first 100 days of a new president. It's also going to be the next legislative session. And whether or not you're a DACA recipient, we also have, we have to protect in-state tuition, which 45, since it started, 45,000 students have gone to college under in-state tuition laws. And what was really important in the, in the state legislature is you coming by and actually telling your story. This is not some hypothetical situation. This is, you're now at the University of Texas, how, you're, how different your life is. So I think that's gonna be really essential for all the dreamers out there to, to talk about how much their future has changed and how that has changed the state of Texas as well. Mr. Chairman, looking forward, do you, do you see, uh, we just talked about the legislature and the new makeup and what can happen. Is it a possibility that at least in state tuition could get revealed? I think it's definitely a possibility. I mean, I, I think it was a possibility this time, but I mean, I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're, the Senate was the, uh, the wall that stopped it from happening. Those were the even two, under the new those rule. Those were the two wins we had. At, that You can look at the Texas Senate where, you know, things still work the way they used to in terms of people could use their heads and, and say, this doesn't make any sense. And I remember the hearing that you're referring to. I was sitting there in higher ed, and, and the stories of people saying, if I had to pay out-of-state tuition, I could not Wouldn't be attending, go. you know? Yeah. And so we had conversations afterwards, and so it, it does make a difference. And um, so hopefully we can retain some of the people who, who are there to hold back the wall. Um, Mr. Nerardi, to his point, you know, what, what happens if, if DACA does go away? I mean, you, you speak to folks mm -hmm. in Washington. I'm sure that scenario has been mentioned before. I mean, what's the solution if that, if that happens? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a terrible uh, reality if that happens, and I think that um, it comes down to telling a story. I think it comes down to um, making sure that people are, you know, registering others to get out there and vote. I mean, this is, it's about political power. Um, it's, it's kind of as simple as that. Yeah. Hello, uh, my name is Josue Rodriguez. Um, I am also a DACA recipient. And my question is sort of in the same line as his, saying, um, but mine is more of a, a, sort of like the sense of urge of action. What should DACA recipients do in order to sort of promote a positive uh, immigration reform? And what can we do with our parents who might not be uh, documented? And what can we tell them? Well, what, can, what can we do in preparation? Or what can we do to promote this issue? While they wait, what do they do? I mean, so DACA. 
we've got 110,000, about 110,000 people in Texas who are recipients of it. About 40% um, of DACA recipients have parents who are eligible for DAPA. But I think you are, are you a student here? No, I'm not. I'm in Houston Community College. Okay. So I, just the way we did it with in-state tuition, we have to start telling the elected officials how different your life is. We saw the, the president take some teachers, honor a few teachers about two months ago at the White House who are documented teachers and how they're making a difference in their community. Uh, now, if there are people who are trying to take it away, we have to highlight those stories and say, look, this is Maria. She is a bilingual teacher here in, in Austin, and she is teaching other kids who have her story. You cannot say that this is a negative thing for the state. So just repeating, repeating uh, your successes and the difference that DACA has made to elected officials and communities all across the state. And I would add one thing is that when you're, when you're doing that conversation, whether it's a meeting or otherwise, uh, um, you know, bringing other people with you and your family, meaning is it, uh, you know, the neighbor who owns a small business, a pastor, the church, et cetera. Because then, I mean, we just find that uh, the more that these conversations are being had with the, the impacted immigrant community and their allies, right. um, it makes it, you know, it makes it clear to that elected official that this is not just something that's limited to the, the Hispanic community in terms of importance. It's really something that's broader. I think that's a great point. I think we need to be looking for more allies in the community at large that say, you know what, let's just use our heads for a second, common sense. Because the thing that strikes me as odd is here you are, especially so many of you who've testified, DACA, DACA recipients who are in college, who are working, doing everything you can to improve your life. You're not sitting, you know, the typical old stereotype of, oh, these folks are just here to get freebies, to get welfare, to, 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 get, to, be on the hand, to get a handout, and, and you're not. You're trying to improve your life. And you're willing to work hard, and so you're the exact opposite of what everything that they're saying. And so that's what I think we also need to go and get people to say, I know these people, and they're good people. What, what if there was, there was a proposal that, uh, kind of similar to what the president um, said, you know, with, with DAPA DACA saying, look, the, those kids on the train that are coming from Central America, they're not going to qualify. They're going to get here too late. I need a certain cutoff point. What if there was a proposal to say, fine, all right, let's, let's figure out a solution to the 11.5 million people that are here uh, without uh, documentation. But after that, that is it. No more. We have to have some boundaries. Is that a possibility? I mean, when is... When is, I guess, when is enough enough, so to speak? But I think all of the proposals that they've introduced have a sure. cutoff date. Right. So, border, so that's, border security. I mean. So, I mean, so that, that would be, that would be. I mean, that's a precursor to reform, I think. I'm sorry? Yeah. Border I mean, security. Right. Like, for example, for DACA, you had to have been here by uh, June of 2007. There you go. Yeah. And so it didn't apply to anybody who got here the next day. Right. Do you agree with that, though? I mean, do you say, okay, fine, I'm sorry, I'm very sympathetic, but you didn't make the cutoff date. Is it as simple as that? In order to move forward with any sort of... But see, again, that's not the problem. I mean, the, the, I mean, the, the policy framework is there. Those policy solutions have been put forward. They've been voted on, passed by a Senate or through executive action. I mean, this is not a policy debate. This is a cultural debate that's mm -hmm. happening across the country. So we have to treat it as such. Mm -hmm. Can right. I say yeah. something? To those two students, to those two young men, stay focused on your education. We're working to keep you here. And I will tell you that we need to show your faces because those Texas employers that are challenged with finding a workforce, they need to hear that you're here, you're willing to work hard, you appreciate the opportunity you've been given, and make, keep making your parents proud. Okay, so don't give up. We'll keep working on that so that you can stay here. Okay. Um, hi, Julieta Garibay. Um, I was undocumented for 20 some years, uh, and I've been able to adjust my status. I'm only a resident right now. And so I just really wanted to hear more on your thoughts about this guest worker program. Um, as an undocumented person, uh, a guest worker program would not be what we want. We want actual rights. We want to be able to live here in this country without fear. We want to be able to work without being exploited. Um, to me, a guest worker program would basically say, let me let you stay here so I can exploit you, and then you don't get citizenship. And so I think it's really um, frustrating to hear that kind of stuff, just because as an undocumented person for 21 years, I know I want citizenship not, not only for me, but for the 11 million people that are in this country. Again, the, the criticism about the guest worker program, it creates two different classes of, of you know, immigrants. I mean, what, what is your response to her, her criticism? You know, once again, we get back to what was just said about a, a cultural debate that we're going to have that's going to go on for a long time. The interesting thing, when I was listening to the, the gentleman who was a journalist, political journalist from Denmark, and he said, 
We're, we've never had this immigration issue before. He said, we have people in Denmark who've been there 50 years who have no dream of ever having citizenship. No, okay. And he said, that the problem with that, and he said, I want you all to know, they don't buy into our society. Because, they have, because you don't give them an opportunity to be a part of it, there's never that commitment, full commitment to it. And if you think about it, all the statistics will show that immigrants in this country purchase homes at a faster rate of time in a shorter amount of time than people who were born in this country. Because if you give them the ability to have roots, if you give them legal ability to be here, they will plant roots. They will, they will buy a home. They will pay their taxes. They want to be a part of society. What you just heard is you want to be right. a loyal part of the, of the society. But, but, but her concern is that, you know, I mean, do you agree that a guest worker program does I, I, Well, let, let's, defi let's define a guest worker yeah. program. Yeah, I mean, I mean you that's, could say for ag workers, for right. construction But, but let's, let's, let's define the, the term guest worker. So for us, it is a work visa program that allows people to come into the country that uh, where the visa is portable, so the person is not tied to their employer, um, the person has work protections, et cetera, um, and then that person is then able to adjust their status to go from a work visa program or the short-hand term, a guest worker visa, uh, to a permanent status, et cetera. That's the way we would define it. I don't know how others would right. define it. And it's a legal. It's a way to be here legally and be able to work. If, if we wait until comprehensive immigration reform, it may take you years, and do you want to, like you were undocumented for 21 years, at least a legal guest work program would give you the right Okay, just like all employees, you would fall under that. And to me, that's what we need to deal with is what we're facing right now because it may take years before we get what we need done. But I'd like to follow it up with a pathway to legal citizenship. I think there's importance to, to say if you pay dues, here's the, yes. the hypocrisy of this country. If you, if you bring a million dollars or half a million dollars or whatever and you get your EB-5, if you go and say, I'm going to go invest, if I'm a wealthy foreigner, Yo, well, let's give you this fast track to your visa and to be a part of our society. But what about sweat equity? I mean, that's what built this country. And so I think that we need to respect the investment that people are willing to make with their hard work as well. If you're building the townhomes where players used to build. Exactly. So I would say, just to give Eddie a little credit, the best way I've, I've heard to uh, explain this is that, you know, when, so when I'm speaking to an audience that where people aren't, aren't, aren't on, on, you know, on the same side, if you will, uh, I'll say, okay, who do you want as your neighbor? A renter or an owner? So the question is, that who do we want to come to this country? Somebody who's renting the American dream or somebody who's owning the American dream as a U.S. citizen? Hi, Marimar Miguel. I'm a student here at the LBJ School, and I had a two-part question. One, how do we move past victories being just stopping legislation and moving proper legislation forward? And two, um, as far as testimonies, thank you guys for sharing your experiences under DACA. What about those students who don't, or, or just people in general who don't qualify for DACA? I was a college advisor and I worked with plenty of students who were here August 2007, November 2007, and so they were left out of that quote unquote dream. I mean, I think the answer to your second question is, you know, what about the people that didn't make a certain date is just an overall comprehensive package that includes everybody. But uh, to the first question, I mean, it does, it does seem that way to, where you know not not being blown out is good enough for now until we kind of you know until until folks sort of regroup or until you know kind of go back to to the drawing board. I mean, it seems like the the Democrats on these immigration issues after Sunny died, they were just like you know that was close. But I mean, so how how, how is it just voting trends? Is it just you know an overall national picture? At least at the state level, how do you move forward? to the question that was asked. We, you know? we, we were put in this position with redistricting. I mean, it, that, that's the first step if you want to build up enough, a big enough margin of, of, of cushion to, to have what you want. I mean, so you have, but how do you control redistricting is by controlling the numbers already in there. So yeah, it's elections. It's elections, unfortunately, have consequences. And we need us to get more people to get up and vote. And, and you know, many times I, I have heard on the campaign show, ¿para qué voto? Todos son iguales, se tapan con la misma cobija. You know, the, the, the frustration of folks, there's no point in voting, you're all the same, you're all, use the same. Well, you know, if we don't get up and vote and, and, and elect people who, who believe what we believe, think what we're thinking, we're going to get what we're getting. And that's the problem. And, that, and so I'm not blaming you, I'm just saying we have got to come together as a community, as a society, and we've got to get that, that sleeping giant that they've been talking about, 
the, the Hispanic vote, we got to get out and vote. And we got to do something. That's the only way. I mean, we have to, um, because I mean, it, it's simple mathematics. I mean, other than that, or it becomes somehow we find a way to get the Republicans to buy into it being the best thing, being something good for business. And, you know, I was listening to Hope and, you know, Hope, if people don't know, she's a Republican and she's, you know, advising you on staying in school, keep being proud, keep doing the things, you know, uh, I'm not going to make, I don't know, a bill. You, you, you've always been a good Republican, you know, but he's out there with us too on this issue. So that's the other thing is that, you know, I, I don't know what we do. I feel like you're, the Republican Party seems to be going through a cycle with Donald Trump and others of, that, that it, I, I don't know what's going to end up coming out of there. And it's kind of scary. But you know, Senator, I'm going to give you the same message that I gave these young students, is those of us that believe in conservative, that we're guided by the conservative philosophy, we're still focused on the same issues, which is making sure that we provide opportunities for our young ones, that as long as they work hard, they can be anything they want. And, and for you, the one thing I ask and that's most important, you know what, I spent four and a half years as Secretary of State traveling the state trying to get people to go out and vote. I was uh, restricted by, I couldn't actually say go out and vote, but I would try to get you educated on the, edu on the voting process. And what we need to do is we need to start in the home. We need to make sure that we talk to our brothers and sisters and parents about what the most important privilege that we have as citizens of this great country is to go out and vote. And also to learn about the candidates. We vote for so-and-so because, oh, mi comadre, or you know, my neighbor, or this person believes that it's the right person. Who's right for our future, for our family? You know, Senator Menendez uh, just mentioned that I'm a conservative and I'm proud to be one. But you know that he and I, we work great together. Because at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. The only thing that differs is how we're going to get there. Wait, I have time for one, one last question. Should I add something to her? I know you talked a lot about the people that are left out but we also have homework to do with the current program. So 1.2 million people are eligible for DACA, but only 700,000 have applied. So let's work to find out why those, those kids have not yet applied. And second, every single year, here's what a lot of people don't know, 90,000 more kids age in when they turn 15 and are eligible to apply. So we have to make sure we get to these 15-year-olds 15, 15 15 and say, you have to apply for DACA because there's so many people that have no other legal, no other venue to achieve this than you do. Last question. Thank you. Hello, my name is um, Ana Maria. I'm a student at Austin College in Sherman, Texas, and my question was, um, how come we haven't moved on with the DREAM Act? What is it that's keeping it from becoming a reality? I understand that there's a policy issue, and maybe that's not completely flawless to where it can come through. And then the cultural um, debate came up and the lack of leadership. How come we are not addressing that if it's that? And and what is it exactly of the cultural issue that we need to be pinpointing and asking of our legislators to address so that we can move on with such a great piece of legislature that is obviously needed? I mean, wow, my, <laughs> I bow down to you guys. Great, great work. I mean, we think it seems like we, we talked about this a little bit. It kind of got lost in the, in the, the Dream Act separately kind of got lost in the conversation about overall mm -hmm. immigration reform. So it's not to say that it's not still alive or is it, is it I mean, it's still, it's, it's always there. I mean, I'm not sure if it's been filed, but it's very easy. You know, if somebody wants to do it, they can file it. Um, but I mean, it comes down to getting the 218 in the House, getting the 60 votes in the Senate, getting the signature of the president. And um, I think, you know, from our perspective, what we are doing is focusing in on very specific regions and districts across the country, uh, engaging center, you know, conservative and moderate faith, law enforcement, and business leaders, because, you know, there is incredible leadership from the Hispanic community to make sure that there is a, a political, a strong political voice. What's neat, where we need to continue to build work is, you know, cloning Bill Hammond um, and having more Bill Hammond. Scary thought. <laughs> but, but he's mentioned 218, and even with comprehensive immigration reform, we would have had yep. 218 votes had they put it up for a vote. Right. Folks, we're out of time. Thank you all so very much for joining us.